Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. Hannah, mm? it was so good to see you. It was so good. It was so good. Let's reminisce about your visit in the sorting chat. Yeah, this is how I want to spend the sorting chat. I want to really point to two important highlights, um, which... <laughs> was the moment when um, Elliot, a.k.a. Baby Hippogriff, mm-hmm. though she is extraordinarily not a baby now. Full, full-on, full hippogriff. Just a full-on, <laughs> full-sized hippogriff. And like all hippogriffs, has extremely strong opinions about art. <laughs> and <laughs> she and I got into an argument not a real argument we were playing with her mario lego set and i was making her laugh by just putting all of the heads of all of the characters on top of each other and just making a monster that was all heads oops all heads and i was like uh look at it it's beautiful i made art and she was like that's not art it keeps falling (laughs) apart (laughs) it keeps breaking with things break they're not art Yeah. It was simultaneously like a reflection of how we do, in fact, value art once it's broken. It's like no longer art, but then at the same time, a like real failure to understand how delicately constructed (laughs) art is. (laughs) So much art is. And how the very process of breaking can make something art. Anyway, what I'm saying is your six-year-old has extremely bourgeois tastes. Yes, Um, makes sense. She has a Super Mario Lego set. It's very bourgeois. <laughs> so that was highlight the first and highlight the second was when 
Um, <laughs> you're four months old and three. Is he, how is he only three months old? He's so big. He's so big. Okay, you're three months old and Caitlin and Steve's seven month old. Eight. Fuck. I thought it was four and seven. It's three and eight months. They are the same size. This is the important fact is they are exactly the same size. And you put them on the ground next to each other. And Cohen, because he is three months old, can't roll over yet. Mm-mm. And Arden, because he is eight months old, can mm-hmm. fully crawl. Mm-hmm. And so you put them beside each other. And Arden immediately flipped over and just started, like, mauling Cohen. <laughs> Arden's parents were like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, he likes it. It's fine. <laughs> Listen, he's not actively crying, so he's fine. It's cute. <laughs> he loves attention. He's a Leo. There was just something about, like, Arden actively clawing Cohen's face and Cohen <laughs> just being like, I love the attention really just sort of reminded me of our dynamic. Oh, bless. That is so sweet. <laughs> I love the attention. <laughs> I can do, you do love the attention and my love language is mauling. <laughs> I also continue to believe very deeply and profoundly that your children instinctively love me because they hear my voice in utero. Yeah, although with Cohen, Cohen heard your voice in utero through my headphones. So a little bit different, but, you know, we we decided that that still works. Still counts. If anybody out there is the kind of doctor that knows about these things and we're wrong, don't you dare correct us. No, you keep your goddamn mouth shut. <laughs> you take your medical degree and all of your money and your ability to save lives and you shut your mouth. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yep. (laughs) We are delighted to be bringing you another guest episode, but before Marcel and I transfigure ourselves into students, let's do a quick review of some previous discussions that will help get us in the right headspace to learn more. In other words, let's do some revision. All right. Our guest, Jay Simpson, who we'll introduce to you formally in the next segment, is joining us today to talk about the centaurs, specifically in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, but like the centaurs in the Harry Potter world in general. We've been wanting to talk about centaurs since the original run of the podcast when we made the argument that the depiction of the centaurs in Order of the Phoenix seemed to us to like draw on and be coded using some pretty heavy stereotypes of indigenous peoples. So similar to our episode on lycanthropy, we're about to take a deep dive into an extended metaphor and talk about the ways that it reproduces reductive stereotypes and harmful ideologies of race. First, a quick recap of some of the conversations we've already had. In our episode on critical race theory with guest Kay Alex, we talked about the ways that racism is systemic and institutionalized, meaning that racism is frequently embedded in cultural norms, laws, and policies, as well as 
overtly expressed as a belief or principle, and that a lot of the time it's attention to those systemic and institutionalized forms of racism that allows us to actually, like, make changes. Mm -hmm. We've seen this also in our episodes on animal studies as we come back again and again to the ways that biological racism is used to reinforce the division between the human and the animal. And that that is sort of one ideological and systemic form that racism has taken historically and in the present day. So, for example, in our first episode on critical animal studies, we talked about Billy Ray Belcourt's argument that the category of the animal as other than human, like that sort of binary, is a settler colonial construct built on, quote, the erasure of indigenous bodies and the emptying of indigenous lands for settler colonial expansion, end quote. And then we did a second episode on critical animal studies where we referenced AFCO's claim that the conceptual violence of dehumanization both animalizes people of color and anchors animal oppression to race. So we've been looking at this intersection of systemic racism and the sort of human-animal divide in a lot of different ways. Isn't that much of a surprise, then, that metaphors for marginalized communities in Harry Potter tend to have, like, animal-like characteristics? That, like, when Rowling is like, oh, look at this marginalized group, how will I represent them? Better make them more animal than the our protagonists. Yeah, literally. Literally, Yeah. But today we're going to be kind of pushing aside the animal-human divide to get at a richer sense of what exactly is up with these centaurs. With all of this fresh in our minds, let's wrap up our revision quick and turn it over to our guest and start unpacking what the heck is going on with J.K. Rowling's centaurs. Well, we may not be able to apparate yet, but isn't Zoom just the next best thing? Yeah? No? Well, anyway, it's Transfiguration class, and we are positively thrilled to be joined virtually by today's guest, Jay Simpson. Welcome, Jay. First, quick bio. Jay Simpson is an OG Cree Salto Indigiqueer from the Sapotawayak Cree Nation. Simpson is a writer, advocate, and activist sharing their knowledge and lived experiences in hope of creating utopia. I mean, no small goal. They're published in several magazines, including, this is going to be everybody's primer in literally all the most important literary and cultural magazines in Canada, so get ready. Poetry (laughs) is Dead, This Magazine, Prism International, Sad Magazine, colon, Green, Guts Magazine, Subterrain, Grain, and Room. They are in, ahem, three anthologies, Hustling Verse, Love After the End, and The Care We Dream Of, most recently. Their first poetry collection, It Was Never Going to Be Okay, was shortlisted for the 2021 Relit Award. It was a 2021 Dane Ogilvie Prize finalist, and it won the 2021 Indigenous Voices Award for published poetry in English, and it was also the answer for a trivia question at the BC Publishers Christmas trivia event last night, (laughs) importantly. What? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. They are a displaced indigenous person resisting, ruminating, and residing on Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations territories, colonially known as Vancouver. Welcome, Jay. Hi, Anin Bujou. Small aside, what was the question? <laughs> the category was emerging writers. And it was, you know, the answer was your name. And it was like, this poet's first full-length collection, It Was Never Going to Be Okay, was published with Nightwood Editions in, like, it was... Okay, that's very obvious. You gave the title away. So people are like, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. (laughs) Whoever wrote that trivia, I beg. I mean, it was Molly Cross Blanchard. So I think that (laughs) she was just underestimating how powerful the Arsenal Pulp Press team would be. Molly, come on. I know Molly. Molly could have, like, given something obscure. Like, which poet threw down at Café du Soleil in March of 2019 (laughs) in front of half of Canlet's Indigenous authors? You know, that could have been. This poet once emphasized their statement about systemic transphobia in the public library by taking the longest possible way back to their seat in the highest possible boots. And the click-clacking of that whole minute echoed through the halls of the library and history. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people say that the first time they met me, uh, that was a statement that they engaged with. And that was totally unintentional. That was me just not realizing where I was sitting. So, (laughs) Wow, it really, it seemed deeply intentional. And that is art. Fragile and powerful. (laughs) You know what's not art? What's not art? What's not art is Rowling's portrayal of centaurs. Oh, the segue! What a gorgeous segue. I love this. Also, the people are going to crave and desire more BTS anecdotes about all of the, like, hip and hot Vancouver writerly uh, events that the two of you have attended. Well, they're just going to have to move to Vancouver then. Cool, cool. Okay, let's let's talk, let's talk about these centaurs. <laughs> I just want to start by saying that Rowling, she really did it, didn't she? She really did it, and she did it very poorly. <laughs> <laughs> and we just got to say that, like, you know what? Like, I have never met a lazier world builder. And I have like six and 10 year olds nieces. So, you know, like that, that's what I got to say, because when you look at her world building, every single species that we encounter has a racial parallel. And that's not good. That's not good. Like that's not, it's like, it's, yeah, it's the worst thing. It is the worst thing. I mean, in this way, she is following in the deeply unproud tradition of Tolkien, who also was like, cool, how will I write fantasy? I will make every nation into a fantastical creature of some kind and mythologize essentialized features of those. So like orcs being like a metaphor for like, I I think actually just literally anybody who isn't British, I believe it's the metaphor that the orcs are. But like that coding, I mean, she's she's unthinkingly and uncaringly, uncritically, yeah, just absorbing 
these these histories of the genre. We also can't entirely blame her because the white men that have had a chokehold on fantasy world building have really like laid it out that that's their imagination. And it's nothing like the the non-white storytelling in which other species and creatures have like their place at the table and their own importance and respect onto them. And as we've seen this woman very publicly decay. That's honestly a kind way to put it. And that's that's me being generous because I don't want to be sued. You know what? I, I can't stand her. <laughs> <laughs> so we recognize that, like, the world building is not the strength of this series. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You know, for a variety of reasons, including that it is almost entirely pastiche. It is almost entirely just taking tropes from other things, smushing them all together and being like, yeah, 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 we get it. Right. Centers, whatever. Move on. Mm -hmm. So what drew you to it? Like what made you a Potterhead when you were a Potterhead? I think the first thing, and this is very real and very vulnerable, was, um, when I first read Harry Potter, his existence under the stairs was very similar to my existence as a youth in care and how I was relegated oftentimes to the have-not spaces of the house and had to watch a lot of my foster parents' biological children get what they want. So I, I saw I saw this story of essentially like an escape as, as something that I had wanted. And as the stories got on, there was so much hope I had in book three when Sirius came up. I was like, maybe there's a relative in my life who has had like a very bad narrative, but like is going to come back and and save me. And like that didn't happen. And as the story progressed and as I got older, I began to interact with the ways in which my existence as like an Indigenous person separated from the wizarding world, but also that kind of level of vilification of indigenous people was very similar to the way that like the Ministry of Magic was vilifying the Order of the Phoenix throughout the series and like the members of the resistance. And it just reminded me so much of how, even though there was this dark army amassing, the ministry wanted to do it the ministry's way because they deemed themselves the be all end all. And that when anyone uh, strayed from that, even if they were doing it for the betterment of everyone, they were considered criminals. And that kind of reminds me a lot of my ancestors and my family who like continued to hunt, who continued to speak the language, who continued to sing, who continued to participate in ceremony were vilified, even though it meant that I got to be here today. And so I grew attached because it was an escape, but then also because even though Rolla Derby herself wrote a kind of bad story. There are some really good bits about it. I mean, that's what I think that's what keeps us here talking about it, right? Is that is that we want to look at this world building and be like, okay, some of this sucks deeply, but also some of it like really meant a lot to a lot of us. It really got me through a lot. And I still have the like, you know, the all the DVDs and Uh, One of the first books I was ever given by my foster father, who I care very deeply for, was The Goblet of Fire. And so it still has like his inscription to me during the holidays. And even though the writer's beliefs vilify my entire existence, 
it's complicated because it's the one thing I have left from that point in my life. And it feels very hard to know that, knowing that this one piece that ties me to this man who raised me and nurtured my love for books is written by a woman who thinks I am a monster. But if that ain't like, you know, her kind of bread and butter, Jesus. Yeah, which is why it is important both to say, (laughs) what did you call her? Roller derby? (laughs) (laughs) Like why it's important to be able to hold at the same time these truths, right? Which is like, fuck her and the way that she is using her power and her platform and her voice and the trust that whole generations of children put in her to do violence. like. Even if you've got the world's shittiest opinions, people seem to forget that shutting up is an option. I was going to say, this is one of the reasons why we're so very fortunate to have you joining us, Jay, because you are coming from a place of, like, really having to grapple with both your, like, hurt and your, like, love and affection for this series. Um, And, uh, yeah, let's talk about the centaurs. What do we know about centaurs in this book? Okay, let's get into it. So our experiences in in the realm of Harry Potter from his narrative and his perspective situationally is firsthand accounts with the colony in the Dark Forest in Scotland. And I think that's very important because that very specific language infers that there's more than one colony and that there's Uh, more existence in other places. And I like that belief because that interaction with one colony, I I find it funny that it's called colony. If she called it a tribe, I would have been like, that's a little on the nose, bestie. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. But the description of centaurs is half man, half horse, which I think is the problem, is in some of the, the ways that speciesism is in the wizarding world where one of my favorite ways to get information is is from the alternative texts and Pottermore. There's there's so much information out there now that she just thought lazily not to include in the books. So she's like, y'all just got to subscribe and pay for it elsewhere. I love paywalling your world building. So funny. Oh, bestie, let's paywall that. So good. So delicious. Mm. So one of my favorite additional reading materials for Harry Potter was Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I was obsessed. I loved it because there were little footnotes uh, of additional information. And one of the footnotes for the centaurs was that they actually did not want to be in the classification of beings in the Ministry of Magic because in that classification were hags and vampires and they hated that their sentience was associated with known dark beings and known dark creatures. And they didn't want the wizarding population to associate them with known dark creatures. And so they said, besties, just put me in the little beastie category because we can't do this no more. Like I'm, we're out, we're good. Just see us as animals because we don't care for you. We do not care for you. We don't like you. We never liked your wig. We never liked your tights. We thought you smelled awful and we're going to just stay in the woods minding our own business. So just put us in the beastie category and leave us alone. We don't need no treaty. We don't need no friendships. We'll only talk to Dumbledore and Hagrid and 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 don't don't talk, don't call us, don't text us, don't send us any letters. 
We're not going to pay no taxes. We're done. Incredible. And so they did. They bounced. And uh, the year after, merfolks joined that classification because they didn't like the idea of being associated with vampires or hags. So we have two autonomous nations, essentially, that said, if you're going to classify us, classify us in a way that doesn't harm us in the bigger sense. We'll take the lesser classification because it's less damaging. It's still damaging, but it's less damaging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that classification manifests in a lot of the conflict in Order of the Phoenix because a lot of the ways that magical creatures, in quotations, are treated in that book that we'll get into later. But one of the things I want to talk about is how centaurs are well known for divination and astrology mm-hmm. and how they are known for reading the stars and seeing ahead. And that kind of mysticism is often associated with indigenous peoples on Turtle Island. We are seen as these seers of knowledge that we enter these ceremonies and we get gifts from the stars. And that kind of perception of us is a bastardization of some of the truth. Mm. My people and my nation, we have stories of star nation. We have stories of messages from the stars. And we learned how to read the stars because we were semi-nomadic on the territories. We traveled. We had summer camps. We had winter camps. We moved about and we were in deep relationship with the land and understanding of it. Centaurs have the same. But I wanted very specifically to talk about how with the creation of some new content, that metaphor is now weaker because Rowling has brought in indigenous species into the wizarding world and kind of made that more of a direct connection. So I kind of see centaurs as an indigenous metaphor, but a pre-church, almost Hellenic existence of indigeneity because Europeans forget they, they have indigeneity in their own way and that before the church, there is an existence and that kind of nomadic livelihood was was apparent. And so when I, I think about indigeneity, I think there is intrinsically a relationship to the land. And that is a lot of the basis that I want to want to put there is that the the interruption of relationship to the land is, is the big hurt. And I think one of the big things that really gets me going is the existence of the Indian Act in Canada and the existing of magical laws in relationship to magical creatures in the wizarding world. Uh, Since we have quite a number of international listeners, could I actually ask you to just clarify both what you mean by Turtle Island and also then to maybe give us a definition of indigeneity? Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. So Turtle Island is a term that as an Indigenous person, uh, I describe uh, North America. A lot of our stories as an Ojukri Soto person um, and my my community uh, describe it as a turtle, that we built our nation and existence on the back of a turtle, and we have to be in relationship with that turtle to live. I mean, speaking of not othering animals, right? Like, Animals are not a metaphor when you are living in such like deep, profound relation. There's there's no metaphor. It is it is uh, oftentimes animals in some of our stories can transfigure into 
into people that we are in deep relationship with. I know there's stories up north where human and animals built families and had children. And those children became warriors and messengers. And and that kind of kinship and understanding is all built on relationship. And to educate some folks on what Indigenous folks are and indigeneity is, I use that word to describe the people who were here before colonization, before white folks came to these lands to eradicate the people and animals here to develop. And uh, the eradication failed because I'm still here. And so many of my kin are still here. And we have so many brilliant people that are the thinkers, doers, creators of these uh, cross nations. And indigeneity to me is built in responsibility to the relationships of the land, language, and culture. And so as an indigenous person, my indigeneity means that I have to participate and I have to work and I have to do. And so that's what I mean. And I will get into some of the deeper layers of what indigeneity is and isn't a little bit later when we talk about some of the things Umbridge has said and done in relationship to the Indian Act. So I also want to sort of unpack briefly, I think when when you mentioned that Rowling has now incorporated Indigenous peoples into her world building, you're talking about Magic in North America mm-hmm. series, yes? Mm-hmm. If we take this original metaphor, metaphorical function of the centaurs, and say, like, it seems pretty obvious that she was drawing on Indigenous tropes, And then that gets, you know, that metaphor like kind of falls apart in some ways when we add magic in North America into it. And she's like straight up appropriating like Thunderbirds into her world, which we have discussed in past episodes. Go see a past episode where we talked about how in addition to being like deeply thoughtless and harmful and cruel is also wildly silly. But if we are actually trying to think in terms of a real comprehensive world building, then You have to be like, okay, I guess now there are indigenous people, so we don't need metaphors or we can't treat the centaurs as the indigenous people of the wizarding world the same way that sometimes people are like, well, the goblins can't be the Jews of the wizarding world because there's that one actual Jewish character. And what I will say to all of this is that that's not how metaphors work. It it isn't. (laughs) So you alluded to laws being a really sort of central part of how you're thinking about, like, centaurs and indigeneity. What laws? So very specifically, I'm referring to the Code of Wand Use that has a decree on wand usage passed by the Wizards Council in 1631. Clause 3 of the Code, known as the Wand Ban, stated that no non-human creature is permitted to carry or use a wand. And that is one of the the main basis of our interaction with the legalities of non-human creatures and magic. There's a few references of registrations and offices and uh, councils, but it doesn't get much deeper as in like section three, part five kind of stuff. (laughs) That's our first uh, deeper legal interaction with that kind of law. And that that is kind of what I'm going to be basing my theory about. And it's that kind of legality that makes me think of my own indigeneity and my own people where we had a potlatch ban. Mm. That was the law. 
and it was active until the the fifties. And very specifically, it kept uh, indigenous people from gathering more than three. So if you had three or more indigenous people, it was considered illegal. Jay, I did not know that. I thought that the potlatch ban really specifically banned potlatch, but I didn't realize that it was in part yes, but it was across it was across a lot of territories. And it was from gatherings to stop cultural gatherings and language sharing. Because potlatch, if I'm not incorrect, it's a West Coast. It's a West Coast is a very specific, Mm -hmm. like, like some nations. It's how they gather. The potlatch ban basically just became a sort of across the board, just preventing Indigenous people from gathering. Yeah. So the the potlatch ban was, I forget the first year it was instated, but I think it was disbanded in the 50s or 60s which isn't that long ago. It really isn't. But it was to interrupt the strength, most importantly, I think of of the West because the Western Indigenous folks were very strong in their their nationhood and in their culture. And so I think that was the birth of it. But it's that kind of legal restrictions from the government that really makes me see that narrative and that parallel where even for us to leave the reserve, we had to get a letter from an Indian agent to leave the reserve. If we wanted to go see a doctor, if we wanted to visit family, if we wanted to go to town, we had to get a letter saying that we were allowed to. And with that, uh, with the Indian Act, we were actually under registration. So a lot of folks don't realize uh, with the Indian Act is that there's an entire registry and we call it status. So there are different layers of status, and then there's non-status, but status is uh, considered through blood quantum. So it's a way to mathematically quantify how much Indigenous blood you have. And that was created as a way to assimilate us into the wider population. They created status and the blood quantum to ensure we could fully integrate. And I think this ties into a lot of the world that Rowling built because the Indian Act is actually what led to apartheid and the Holocaust. A lot of folks don't realize that Hitler took the Indian Act as inspiration for a lot of the things that he did for registration and classification and internment. And a lot of folks could say that Harry Potter is very much an allegory to the Holocaust. And so it's interesting that so much of the world of Harry Potter in the tension, the political tension and the the in, inequality has real world ties that go back to indigeneity. It goes back and there's a lot of roots in it. If we could pause for a moment, because I just, again, I'm thinking about our international listeners who are just going to be like, what is the Indian Act? What is happening? So Indian Act, late 1800s? The Royal Proclamation of 1763 laid out the basis of how the colonial administration would interact with First Nation peoples. And that Royal Proclamation led to the Indian Act in 1876. So there was actually a hundred years of precursor, and then it was solidified in 1876. Yeah, which is like nine years after Canada becomes a, a thing. There was also, before that, there was the 1850 Act for the Better Protection of Lands and Property of the Indians in Lower Canada, which was a a lot of the treaty process to ensure the the relationship between Indigenous folks and settlers. So one of the things, I think, really crucial things for folks to understand is that the, the blood quantum logic of 
indigeneity managed by the Indian Act is almost kind of the opposite of the way that blood quantum was used in the U.S. to manage Black people. Because the goal in the U.S. was to make sure that anybody with, you know, the one-drop rule, anybody with a drop of Black blood was still Black. In Canada, the Indian Act was about systematic dispossession in order to force Indigenous peoples to assimilate with the... It was about land. Yeah, so that you could break the treaty, right? Because the treaty only held if you had status. And so if you figure out a way to gradually take everybody's status away, then the treaty doesn't hold and you can have all the land. You can get the land. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the basis of registration. It wasn't built on keeping any agreements or deals or honoring. It was all about how long and how much of the breakdown do we respect until we can just take the land and say, oh, the queen said we could do it. Yeah. And it was just wild shit. Like like if a um, indigenous woman had children with a settler their children lost status. And she she lost status. And she lost status. And I think you also lost status for going to university at some point. You did. And also during a lot of the wars during conscription, if you were a soldier, you lost your status, which kind of leads to some of the, the bigger political going-ons in Indian country it is the loss of status. There, there were many reasons to lose status and it was all about grabbing land and securing it. And recently there's been some overturning of these arbitrary laws where like my mother was not considered status because she had a white father, but my my grandmother had status, my great-grandparents had status. Even though she has now passed on posthumously, she now qualifies for status because of the overturning of the very uh, misogynistic laws because my grandmother lost status. She was born with status, but she lost it because of her relationship with my grandfather. And so for the longest time, I actually was considered non-status until my biological father came forward with his status card. And so it's very complicated and there's so many um, misogynistic based laws that kept me from accessing status. But now like, because of they, they, they're making some exceptions because it's still the law, like it's, that's still the law, but they're choosing not to administer it, essentially. Yeah. And so that it considering that so many systems of registering and counting populations were essentially sort of played out via colonialism as a strategy, it makes so much sense to see those links between the Indian Act, status laws, treaty violations, and what we see happening with, like, the categorization of non-human creatures into things like beings, the word I truly cannot say, and beasts, and the, like, management of, like, who can have wands and who can't, and who's allowed to, like, poor centaurs just fucking trying to chill in the forest, just leave us alone. We just want to be in this forest. They want to be in the forest. They, they as later books go on after the after the second Wizarding War, the Ministry of Magic gives the centaurs the dark forest. And that is a part of the agreement. And the 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 building of human and centaur relations is the fact that the dark forest is now their legal domain. And I think that that is really what ties it further in because 
if we decide to, but we kind of have to because it said it's canon. The cursed child has an interaction with Bane of the centaur colony in the dark forest where he says, y'all shouldn't have come here. This is our land. You were not meant to cross here. And I think that's really important because they have their own autonomy. They have their own language. They have their own lifestyle. And they were happily existing in the dark forest. They were like, we're good. Like, we're happy. This is our home. Yeah, everything is fine here. And we allow two wizards to come and visit because they've proven that they know how to not be dicks. Two. That's it. End of story. That's it. <laughs> End of story. Truly. And and the way that Ferenz is treated by other centaurs also in relationship to his kindness to other humans is really interesting because he saves Harry uh, on one occasion and he is shamed for it because uh, in the first book, he lets, he rides Harry to safety. And the other centaurs are like, that's really disgusting that you let a human on your back Mm. and that you did that. That is so disrespectful Mm -hmm. and disgraceful. And I think that's very interesting because like one of the most important things is the centaurs are proud. They don't see themselves as animals. That, that, That aspect of being ridden is given to animal traits. But then as we see in humans' history, the, the animalizing of other races is apparent. And so I find that as a very important nuance because in this situation, Harry depended on the centaur's knowledge of the land and the nature of the land to move through it safely, which is oftentimes what settlers needed in, on Turtle Island. Oh, yeah. That point that you made earlier about the fact that like we see the centaur's mapping the stars, knowing about the stars, understanding the system, and all of the wizards who interact with them are looking for a way in which that can be useful, i.e., can you use this to tell us what's going to happen? Can you use this to teach our children to tell us what's going to happen? And, like, one, Ferenz's refusal of that whole model, absolutely incredible, but two you don't see any wizards recognize the, like, primary utility of that skill set, which is, like, they're not getting lost in the Dark Forest, are they? No. Every time Harry goes in there, he gets lost, but, like, and needs to be saved by somebody. But, like, at no point does it seem to occur to anybody that, like, maybe you could just straight up teach people how to just find their way with the stars. That might be a useful skill. And the only two non-centaur beings who can move their way through the forest are the ones who have relationship with the centaurs. Wow. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We are teetering on the edge of owls. But before we get there, Jay, is there anything else 
that you want to talk about, any other information that you think will be helpful for us, um, helpful for our listeners, uh, before we really get into the analysis of the text? Yes, there is something very important, and I want to hold a lot of space for it. I think it's very important for me to bring up when Umbridge experiences the centaurs in the dark words, she so casually drops a slur like it's typical everyday vernacular. And I really want to say that I will not say this slur at all, and I will not say it in any means, even in the context of Harry Potter, because it is one used against Métis folks and kin. And I want to recognize my own kinship and relationship to Métis family members, culture, and language, even though I myself do not have that direct lineage. And I want to specifically tie it into to the Métis identity because we must also recognize how centaurs are perceived as half human, half horses, rather than an entire species with a culture, spiritualism, language, and social structure. That centaurs aren't human plus horse equals centaur. Centaurs are centaurs. They are an entire species, their entire um, own genetic uh, makeup, their own uh, reproductive systems, their own family structures. They are an entire species on their own. They are not a hybrid. And this idea of halves is entirely based in eugenics and sounds awfully like how so many folks perceive Métis identity as well as blood quantum. And a lot of folks see Métis identity as half Indigenous, half European, very specifically French. And and that's not entirely the case where initially that that was a, a commonality but Métis identity is so much more and so much more than I can even speak of because it, it, it isn't one of my deep, deep, deep experience, but they are their own people, their own structure and their own ways of being and their own essential laws. And so when we see Umbridge just drop this slur that is often associated with mixed wizard and muggle no match ancestry, it is so violent and so disrespectful. And it's such a, such a huge violation. And it is something that we, we need to think about more in this world that Rowling has created is oftentimes people are using the wrong language and they don't have that deep understanding of what the truth is because there's no relationship, there's no conversation, and there's no dialogue. We see it in Harry Potter's Innocence and Hermione's Curiosity. Conversations with other beings and creatures is what builds that understanding and that relationship. There's a reason why so many of these, uh, I, I hate saying creatures, but there's these, these beautiful life forms who come to the aid of Harry Potter because there's an understanding. And I think that's very, very, very important when we look at it, is that it's all based in relationship. Oh, that's beautiful. I am so excited to talk more about Firenze's pedagogy and what happens to Umbridge when she goes into the woods. So are we ready? Are we ready to segue? I feel ready. Let's do it. It 
If I'm being honest, Marcel, I'm not sure which I want more. The ability to apparate or the power to pass these owls. Wow, Hannah, I really thought that you were going to take the opportunity to make a joke about having the power to become an animagus or animagus. I can't remember how we say it. Well, I might have if you'd written it into the script. Oops. Let's talk about Ferenc first. Okay, I love him as a teacher. We've briefly talked before about this pedagogical approach, but Dumbledore goes to Ferenc and says, would you like to teach divination at my school? And Ferenc is like, yes. And then begins to teach this class and is like, hey, guess what, everybody? Divination is unteachable. Enjoy. We should also include the fact that he nearly got killed for agreeing to teach it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What do you make of that? I think it, it's a very complicated thing because I see it as like the the centaur colony being scared that their secrets are going to be revealed to non-centaurs. And that's a really big fear because once folks know, they'll know where to hit and how to hit, right? So when Bane was like, let me take your life for being a little bitch, Ferenc being like, no, I, I just want to educate people and build relationships. And then when he gets to the school, he's like, oh no, all of these students are little bitches. Let me just tell them they can't learn. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> he really went there and was like, wait a minute, something's not right. <laughs> so do you think he like came with the real intention of teaching them and then arrived and was like, oh, never mind? I think that's in part, but also I think he saw this as an opportunity in hopes to build relationships. And and when Dumbledore comes and asks you to do something, even though he's like a manipulator, I think in part there's, you do it. I think Jay, what you're pointing out is like a sort of fundamental difference between Ferenz and Trelawney, where like Trelawney, even though she says that like not everybody has the ability to see that like she's still training them all to do it. And so then when they when they pretend to do it, she's like, oh, you're doing it. And then with Ferenz, he's like, no, you won't be able to do it, but here's what we do. And I think that that really speaks to this, like, building of relationships that you're talking about, this, like, relationality. He may not be there to teach them how to, like, read the stars, for example, but he is really good at teaching them that they don't know everything and that they will never know everything. And I think that that is a valuable service for these students. <laughs> I think there there was also uh, a lot of the students' perceptions of centaurs is because they could read the stars, they, knew, they know all. And Ferenz is really good at being like, we may see something, but we don't know the time. We don't know the exact timestamp that it's going to happen. We cannot determine that. We can see what is coming. We just don't know when. And I think that's important because I was looking into it. And in the first book, when Bane tells Ferenc that Harry is destined to die in the dark woods against Voldemort, Bane was like, you should have just let him be killed by Voldemort. Well, Harry is killed by Voldemort in the dark forest in the seventh book. So there's that kind of foreshadowing that we see in the first that we don't even, I don't even know if J.K. Rowling put that in there. I don't know if she's <laughs> actually that smart. I can't speak to that. <laughs> but it might have been just a coincidence. But to me, that's like, oh, 
okay, the centaurs can see what's on the horizon, so to speak, but they have no idea when that's going to arrive. Yeah, and and don't know the same way the other predictions don't know that, like, he can die and then also come back. Like, the surrounding, the whole surrounding context, the whole situation in which this happens is not necessarily self-evident. It's, like, deeply context-specific. I do love the way that sort of Bane and Ferenz demonstrate to, like, opposing but both totally valid approaches to having relationships with the wizarding world that like it makes sense that Ferenc is like relation is useful communication is useful connection is useful and Bane is like I could not trust them less we should have nothing to do with them and like both of those are like pretty reasonable conclusions to have arrived at based on the interactions they've had with wizards I think another thing that may be jumping ahead is when we interact with the colony in Order of the Phoenix, I think that's what solidifies the very weak alliance with centaurs and Hogwarts because we see the ways in which Voldemort allianced folks interact with uh, non-humans. So in in the final battle, when the centaurs are whooping ass, I I don't think that they're there for like the best of reasons. They're there because it's the lesser enemy. Enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yes. Yes. And I think that's a very legitimate stance being like, I'm going to team up with you to get rid of this group that would get rid of us both. And then we'll just leave each other alone. Yeah. Another way in which we see the centaurs being really strategic Right. And that similar, like, fine, we'll be beasts. Like, we're making a strategic choice here because we are not being offered the actual best case scenario. We're just going to sort of navigate the actual situation that we're being offered. You know, reading the books, I think it's easy to forget that just because our protagonists are the good guys. It's easy to forget that people like Umbridge are actually the ones with power. So, like, she might be a bad guy who walks into the forest, uses hateful language, and is violent and disrespectful. But she's also just, she's just enacting the power that she has as a representative of the ministry, as, like, the the government of of this of this region. So we can't just like dismiss her behavior as being well that's just what bad people do. It's like no 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 that's that's the system that's in place. That's the management system in place that we see at its logical conclusion. Yeah, no that's so key. Like the way that via Harry's perspective we as readers relate to the ministry and to the government is that we are following the path of a child who doesn't understand politics, doesn't understand legal systems, barely understands how they impact him, let alone how they impact other people with totally different experiences from him. And we see, you know, this book opens with him having a violent, frightening confrontation with a legal system that is based in surveillance and management and control of how magic can be used. And then 
you know, we see him, he returns to the ministry at the end of this book and has another kind of violent confrontation. But but so much of what is happening in this book is Harry just beginning to see up close how power operates and how the ministry uses and enforces power. And so it's such a striking difference between, I mean, first, just how he encounters the centaurs in the first book and in this one, but also like how he encounters the people in Goblet of Fire versus how he encounters the centaurs here. You know, the people in Goblet of Fire are like a fun prop that lets him play this like, you know, magical escape room that is the Triwizard mm-hmm. Tournament. <laughs> because he has, he just has no sense or context, right? He has no awareness of like what they're doing there, no relationship to them. And that is shifting in the fifth book because a big part, you know, as we talked about with Amanda, a big part of what's happening in this book is these children starting to get introduced into this more adult world where they have to understand these like institutions and laws and political corruption and, you know, not trusting what they read in newspapers and like all of this stuff. So that all kind of in some way culminates in Harry like witnessing how Umbridge treats the centaurs. And, like, that is yet another way that he is starting to understand the world he is living in better. You make a lot of sense. And I I think interacting with Dolores Umbridge, it was such an eye-opener for Harry because there, there there is such a cruelty with this character. She is so devout to the absolute of law. And it is, I think, one of Harry's first encounters with someone who is quite dangerous outside of Voldemort and his followers. And there isn't a direct connection immediately. It's later on where Umbridge sort of follows Voldemort in in a different kind of way with government. But he wants her to be working for Voldemort so badly in this book because that's his understanding of evil. But she isn't. She's she's working because she believes the government is the truth and the end and the beginning and the middle and everything. She she thinks the government can do no wrong. Yeah. And the way she acts is so disgusting. Like her interactions with the centaurs, she's like, by the laws laid down by the Department of for the regulation and control of magical creatures, any attack by slur, such as yourselves on a human. And then Bane is like, what did you call us? And then Harry is kind of just like... Because <laughs> oh. this is an audio medium that was some like following a tennis match, looking back and <laughs> forth action. There is nothing like a, what did you call us? That really like boils the tension to the highest. And it's like, what's coming next is big. What do we think about the fact that the centaurs carry Dolores Umbridge off into the forest? And all we know after of what happens is that she has incredible trauma. People make the sound of horse hooves to like scare her. And in our original run, 
we read this as like in part trading on the stereotype of like like indigenous people stealing white women away um and that there is an implication of sexual violence in the way in the way that she is taken away that plays into the larger sort of construction of the centaurs as like uncivilized others you know connected in the films in particular with like they have bows and arrows and like drums play whenever they come on screen yeah in 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 that kind of structure when umbridge calls them filthy anything she says after that point her ass whooping is deserved but the kind of portrayal of it is like the only centaurs we interact with are male centaurs and that kind of portrayal really feeds into the way that indigenous men are perceived and seen as, as sexual deviants is really, really, really harmful and continues to harm everyone. And, and it, it, it's hard because regurgitation loves to infer things. She loves to... <laughs> Sorry, it took me a second. It also took me a second. <laughs> to be like, Love regurgitation loves to infer? Gotcha. Our word loves to infer things. Yes. So sh- she likes to infer things that are happening without saying it. And I think in part that's her being like, but I never said it. I never actually said it. So you can't say I did it. And it's like, there there was a naivety to me as a young child being like, she just got beat up. But when we look at it, and read between the lines, there is so much that could have been done to lead to that kind of trauma. Because when she comes back in other books, her own vilification is further, which kind of speaks to like the way her being a villain is very complicated and nuanced, but the way that we as a collective humanity like to further vilify trauma survivors is, is an issue also in part. But I think she was wicked through and through. There's, there's, there, there is no doubt about it. It's a, in some ways, a not my daughter, you bitch moment of like a villain getting their comeuppance, which is just like a trope of children's literature. And so in some ways, it's like, yeah, we have watched this woman torture children throughout much of this book. Like she is awful. And Villains get their comeuppance in children's literature. That's, like, how it works. Um, and I, got, like, Umbridge <laughs> needs some comeuppance for sure. And then it's that complexity, right? Where it's, like, the way in which that comeuppance is delivered is also, can be simultaneously deserved and also delivered in a way that furthers some of the troubling ways that the centaurs are coded as less than human, right? Which is one of the ways that they are being coded. So what I hear the two of you saying is that we need Umbridge to get her comeuppance. We need her to experience some kind of punishment. And Rowling has been sufficiently vague in the way that that punishment is delivered that she, as the author, doesn't need to take any responsibility for what happens But we live in a society that, like, just takes sexualized violence for granted. And so the result of being vague about this comeuppance 
it's really sort of enabled the reproduction of sexualized violence like as a tool for punishment when that needn't have been the case. It's probably my most hated personal narrative trope is the casual deployment of threats of sexual violence against female characters for the most part as a way of either punishing them or even just casually signaling, like, the danger of the situation they're in. Like, there's so many texts that are like, okay, well, we've got to have a rape threat. Otherwise, nobody will know that this is a dangerous situation. Um, And it's so gratuitous and it's so unnecessary. And it's so, so possible to tell stories without doing that. And I think it's just another example of a kind of lazy... Um, shorthand. And I think another thing is when Hannah and I are saying that she deserves some kind of consequence, we do not mean that. We do not want to even infer that. Part of my wish is that if, if this scene were to go differently, if I would have it any other way, is that there would be a, like, the ways in which accountability in Indigenous communities is very different when harm is done. And sometimes folks forget that we have our own laws and protocol. I wish we saw Centaur protocol. I wish we saw some sort of ceremony of accountability because the way in which they whisk her off and things are inferred, it dehumanizes them even more. And it it creates that savage in the wood narrative I wish that, you know, she had a hand taken or maybe even a tongue taken. If someone is speaking ill of someone in community continuously, their tongue is taken. And that would have been interesting to see. Or some of her own techniques used against her when Harry says, I must not tell lies. I would have loved to see a scene where the centaurs use their own magic to be like, you are going to mark yourself for the ways in which you act. I think that would have been a way to say, we don't have to tell this story with with any inference of sexual violence. I really wish that was the case, but when we look at it and when we read it, it really looks that kind of way. And also at the end of the day, I wouldn't have trusted Rowling with any of those depictions you're describing because any of that would have, I think, in her hands and I think in the hands of like all white authors would just fall right back into those stereotypes, right? Because they are not rooted in relation. They're not rooted in understanding of protocol. They're not rooted in any sense of, like, the centaurs as a society with a complex, rich history, with their own legal systems, with their own ways of, like, managing the kinds of violence that Umbridge represents. And it's that, like, part of that is just... What we lose in that moment that Umbridge gets carried away is, as you say, like any sense of an internal world for the centaurs. So in previous conversations grounded in like queer theory, we talk a bit about how there are these slippages in the books that even though they're written by an author with these hateful ideologies, the books still contain these slippages that are 
just so delicious. And one of the things that Ferenc says that I just think about all the time is when he responds to, I can't remember if it's Lavender or Parvati, but one of them like talks about Mars and how you need to be careful so you don't like stub your toe or whatever. And he's like, that is human nonsense. And (laughs) it's just such a delicious line that I think is a great example of one of these incredible slippages where it just... It just says so much. Yeah, that does speak, I mean, to exactly what we were just saying, right? Of like, just because this author isn't capable of giving us anything richer with the centaurs doesn't mean that there aren't these slippages that tell us that there is something richer going on and that we can see those like, like, oh, okay, everything that we're actually getting to see is like filtered through human nonsense. But... There's uh, so many lines that I wish we got to explore, not only with friends, but in, in the dark woods, one of the centaurs, when Hermione's like, please let us go. Like, we're, we're innocent. We are like, I, we like you, like, we'll leave. And she's like, uh, one of the centaurs is like, we are not all like the traitor friends, human girl. Perhaps you thought us pretty talking horses. We are an ancient people who will not stand wizard invasions and insults. We do not recognize your laws. We do not acknowledge your superiority. And it's kind of just them being like, bestie, you thought, but we have our own ways. Like, how dare you? (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's another, it's just another one of those like beautiful gaps that like we can look at what the text is doing and saying like okay on one level this sucks and on another level like we can find our way through to something more jay is there anything else that you want us to talk about before we end i think what i would want to talk about is how this is just another example of flawed narrative and world building and that when we look at it, there are so many people of color authors who are doing it so much better. And we need to celebrate that also and recognize that even though that Rutabaga woman wrote the books, doesn't mean that we can't change it to, to make it fit more. Like the way that we've been celebrating Ferenz and his... Uh, brilliance is very beautiful. And I think that's upending a lot of the narrative that she's ingrained in this tapestry. I feel like that's a beautiful wrap to this segment. Yeah. It's almost like you're a poet or something. It's Jeez. almost like I do this for a living. Oh my God. <laughs> almost like. Almost like. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. Jay, if the people want to find more of you, where do they go? On Instagram, I'm J underscore Simpson, and that's J-A-Y-E underscore S-I-M-P-S-O-N. On Twitter, it's F-K-A underscore J Simpson. Amazing. 
Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who has left us five-star reviews. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel weeping in the tropical moonlit night because nobody's told her about you. I'd go the whole wide world to say thank you to Zat922 and Jess Roscoe. Okay. (laughs) And while I'm at it, thank you to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters for making this show possible. We are recording this episode in the midst of our Patreon holiday drive. If you want to join the hallowed ranks of our patrons and exercise the accompanying bragging rights, you can do that at any time, like now. Don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. Did we hit $5,000 a month by January 1st? If we did, we can't, don't know, no way to know. If we did, we'll do a live recording of Which Please Tell Me with all patrons invited to attend. So stay tuned. And if we didn't, no live recording for you. No live recording for anyone. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then... Later, witches! softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.